This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Good morning and welcome to Triple R's Radiotherapy. Good morning and welcome to Triple R's Radiotherapy. Your weekly hour of all things medical and psychological. Your weekly hour of all things medical and psychological. This is Dr. Autonomy. This is Miss Medic. And we're attempting to co-host the show And we're attempting to co-host the show for you today. Um, How do you think it's going, Miss Medic? I don't know. This is not working. (laughs) It's not quite how I imagined when we planned it. Um, What else could we do? What else could we do? Um, Let's try about one word each. Okay. Do you want to start or do you want me to? You start. Today, not only do we have two hosts, we also have our long-standing and very wonderful resident child psychiatrist, Dr. Malice, joining us. <laughs> and as well as that, we've got a special guest with us for the whole hour too. <laughs> <laughs> That's so much harder than I thought it would be. Yeah, I know. And it's really very funny, but I fear it might take us the full hour to get through the whole okay, introduction. Yep, what do you definitely. reckon? Um, how about you tell us about the special guest and then I'll tell us what else is going on for the show. Sounds good. Okay, so I'd love to. Our special guest on the show today is my good friend, Mr. Fixit. Mr. Fixit is an orthopaedic surgeon based in Western Australia who's currently spending a year at our Royal Children's Hospital working on hip problems in children and adolescents. I also have to say, he's not your typical surgeon. For example, today he wants to talk about non-surgical techniques for chronic pain in young people. As well as that, I thought we'd get some of Mr Fixit's thoughts on recent the recent in- investigation into bullying and sexual harassment that was carried out by the Royal, Royal College of Surgeons. Very topical stuff and a real treat to have him for the full show today. Fabulous. Uh, as well as that, we've got a segment coming up from Dr Malice today about mental health and sports people. He's been reading all about Buddy Franklin, which I know will surprise you, <laughs> and Buddy's break from football for mental health reasons and also the public reaction to this. So he's going to extend the conversation a bit today to help us think about the mental health of public figures and our responses to this. Okay. But, shall we get started? Yep. Let's grab a cup of coffee and settle in with your two hosts for this morning as we fill in the hour until 11 o'clock. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. Two hosts. I'm quite in, I'm quite loving it. Ms. It's, yeah, it's, it's quite great. fun, yeah. yeah. If I something feel... goes wrong, I'll just blame you. <laughs> and vice versa. Perfect. <laughs> um, good morning to you, though. As we were saying, it has been a while since we've both been in the studio. Yes. You've been gallivanting all over Europe. I have, indeed. I have skipped the Melbourne winter. Oh, half your luck. I know. But now I've been struck down with one of the viruses that has probably been burdening you all in the last three months. So I think I'm getting my just desserts as I struggle with my cold. So apologies if I sneeze or cough throughout the show. It's a pretty rude awakening to come back to, isn't it? I thought you might have avoided them all. I thought that I would have as well. It's supposed to be spring, right? Although today is a beautiful Melbourne day. It is a beautiful Melbourne day. How long were you away for? I was away for three months. Amazing. And what have you been doing? I mean, doing I say that I like away? I don't know that. I was counting down the days till you got back. <laughs> <laughs> oh, how long were you away for? And life has changed for you, Dr. Autonomy. 
It has indeed, yes. Is um, there a baby autonomy I can see in the green there room? There is a baby autonomy in the green room and a daddy autonomy taking care of him. Thanks very much. How perfect. He um, is absolutely divine. <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you very much. We love him and um, it's, a, it's a new world, but it's a, a wonderful one. I was actually talking to Dr Doolittle on the phone a couple of weeks ago um, about Triple R and, you know, who was doing which shows. And he said to me, how are you going? And I said, we're really good. And he said, you're a typical mum you just answered in the plural when I asked how you were that just says it all I don't need to know anything more and I think that really does sum it up yeah. Could I just Dr ask, Malice what, yes, yes. what does that do to the actual title of Dr Autonomy and oh. Baby Autonomy if the answer is in we that's oh. a great point I've that got to change excellent. it I really think there's an update needed Dr I mean, us yeah some, well uh, doctors yeah. us <laughs> Dr Autonomies uh, yeah I like it um Dr. Malice, good morning to you. Good morning and welcome back. Welcome thank you. back to both of you. Thank you very much. And thank you for keeping, you know, all the cogs turning over while we... Yes, well, we've had a radiothon about a month ago. Yes. And just in honour of your return, we also changed Prime Minister, just in case you weren't quite happy with the <laughs> oh, previous yeah. ones. Yeah. I wasn't very uh, happy with the old one, actually. Yeah, there's a few changes that have been underway. Yes, I love it. see that. And there's one other person in the studio that we haven't said good morning to yet, Dr. Fixit. Good morning. Oh, it's Mr. Fixit. Oh, Mr. He's a Fixit. surgeon. Ooh, good morning. Thanks for having me on the show. It's lovely to have you here. Thanks for joining us for the whole hour. Yeah. So is it Mr. or Doctor? Can you explain this to me? Well, it's Mr. in Perth, Mr. in Melbourne, Doctor in Sydney. Um, oh. Surgeons have this tradition of being Mr. because of the, or the heritage. Yeah, or Ms. Yeah. yeah. Because of the heritage uh, in, uh, the, I guess, coming from barbers. So while you know, some people are called doctors not to confuse the patient, I guess the, the Mr. is a homage, paying homage to the, the history of right. surgery. Okay, so can we kind of go with either this morning or shall we go with Mr.? Oh, Mr's, Mr's good. Mr's good. Mr. Like Fix-It Mr. Mr. Fix-It, Fix yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, there's a fracture. I need, to, I need to fix it. I've got a whole list of things that you might be able to help me out with. <laughs> um, Miss Medic. Mm-hmm. Where to next? This is great. So I don't have to plan anything. I can just throw to you. Yeah, well, I think that between the two of us, we should be able to create a show, right? <laughs> I think you were going to lead us up with talking a little bit about um, addiction experiment. Oh, an addiction experiment. Yes. <laughs> so I think that this actually is not a recent experiment, but I read about it online a few weeks ago and I didn't know about it and I found it fascinating. So I thought it would be worth mentioning on air because I thought perhaps some of our listeners would also find it fascinating. So it was an article that was in the Huffington Post um, by Johan Hari and he's a guy who's just written a new book which is all about the war on drugs and he was referring to these um these experiments that had been done with rats and drugs about addiction. You might even have seen um, some of this sort of experiment in action because one of the experiments went on to become a very famous advertisement about cocaine that aired in the States. Um, I'm not sure if it aired in Australia as well, but it was this advertisement by a com- or an organisation called Partnership for a Drug-Free America and the advertisement is you see this rat in a cage and there's nothing else in the cage. It's an empty cage and it's just a rat and um, water bottles and there's two water bottles. One is just plain water and one is water that's laced with either cocaine or heroin. And what happens is that the rat continuously goes back to the water that's laced with the drugs and um, keeps... 
having a fix of this water again and again and again and again until it eventually kills itself from um, having so much of the drug. And so it's said to be, you know, akin to how addiction happens and, you know, there's this very serious voice that sort of comes on at the end of the ad saying, you know, cocaine can kill you too and, I mean, I'm I'm not getting the words exactly right but, you know, this is what can happen and, you know, there's only... Um, one thing that um, kills rats and keeps them going back and back for more, and and this can happen to you too, um, as part of the drug on wars, uh, the war on drugs. Sorry, there's um, example one of sleep deprivation for you. <laughs> <laughs> the drug on wars. Um, so interesting experiment, you know, pretty definitive. Yes, you're exposed to a drug, you keep going back for more, you can't stop, you die. But one of the Canadian psychologists who saw this, um, a guy called Bruce Alexander, thought, hang on, this doesn't really simulate real life very well and the rat is just in a cage all on its own in isolation. Um, Maybe we could make it a little bit more lifelike and so instead he created this thing that he called rat park and in rat park it's not just an empty cage i don't want to go to rat park by the way i don't like the sound of that um but in this cage you know they they call it a lush cage and there's colored balls and there's the best rat food that you could buy and there's tunnels and they've got friends and it's meant to disneyland for rats exactly precisely (laughs) and it's meant to simulate a rich meaningful life full of other things and so they did the same thing they had these rats in this lush cage and they had the two water bottles one was plain water one was laced with cocaine or heroin and what they found was that the rats with good lives as they call it um, didn't die none died in fact and they only consumed less than a quarter of the drugged water compared to the rats who were in this isolated cage Wow. So I found this fascinating and I don't know if this is something that loads of people have heard about but I guess it's so telling in terms of helping us to think through the reasons that people become addicted to a drug and perhaps it not being just about an addictive substance in the drug but actually being about what else is happening in someone else's life mm-hmm. um, and around them or what's happened in their childhood, you know, a whole range of things. But it's about their emotional life and their um, the richness and the meaning that they have around them and the social connections. And so I guess the, the conclusion that they come to, um, and it's a pretty astounding sentence that was um, in this article that says, the opposite of addiction is not sobriety but human connection. Which I think is pretty interesting stuff. Dr Mallon. Well, that would be in total keeping with the game-changing paradigm change that's going through science currently, Mm. that regulation is the uh, centrepiece of human well-being. And so if you take a very narrow view that drugs are regulating only the chemical pathways versus relationships, interactions, regulate our whole being, then being in a rat park for the rat is regulating the total life cycle and interaction. Mm. And this research paradigm has moved from the old paradigm, the reductionist, just let's look at a drug and a behaviour, to the new paradigm, let's look at the interaction and relationships. And this is the game-changing uh, phenomenon that's going through the paradigm change in all of behavioural science. Mm. And then epigenetics, of course, kicks in and all the other things. Miss Medic. And the thing that sort of that kind of sparks for me is thinking about, well, you know, it's someone who's using a substance isn't sort of just doing that in isolation mm. either. They're doing that within a social construct as well. So if you talk about people that then become, you know, 
clean from their drug use, you actually have to change their social environment as well. So often they've been socialised amongst a group of people that are using a drug, but it's not enough just to take away the drug. You actually have to change that social environment and create a new social construct in which those people are happy to live in. And that's the challenge too. So it's, you know, it's very complex. It's not, uh, you know, using drugs, not using drugs, that type. It's not as simple as just taking away the drug or giving giving the drug it's about everything else that's going on with it and like you just said you can't just take away that particular social environment and not replace it with something else and so some of the discussion that's flown on from this is that jail for example is isolating people you know what could be more like a cage you know an isolated cage than jail takes away all your social connections and then pops you back out in the world without any of them so it's totally counterintuitive if you think of addiction and drug use in this way absolutely yeah. and, and then you have the incredible recidivism exactly, exactly. precisely for that reason because nothing Things changed. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so interest, very interesting yeah, stuff. All right, so. we are going to take advantage of the fact that we have a surgeon in the studio with us, which we don't have dun, very dun, often dun, anymore. Dun, 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 dun. Since the days of Baby Doc. Baby Doc was yeah. the last oh, time. Yeah. Cardiac surgeon. And he's also gone west as well. Yeah. yeah what's going on? Interesting. Yeah, the Hawk Hawks are also going west this week. <laughs> oh, sorry, whoops. <laughs> your later, yes. Alice, later. <laughs> All right, so Mr. Fix-It. Obviously, lots of you out there listening will be aware that over the recent months there's been lots of talk about uh, bullying and discrimination, sexual harassment in the Royal Australian College of Surgeons. Um, And there has been a statement that's come out from the Royal Australian College of Surgeons over the last week after they had... um, some findings from a report from an expert advisory group that they set up to look into this specifically. Miss Medic, I think we spoke about this on the show a few weeks back, did we? Is it, was this sort of started by someone coming out and talking about what had happened to her in her training as a young surgeon? And, That's right. Yeah. So there was a young surgeon who came out, a female surgeon, saying that she had been exposed to sexual harassment in what, during her training. And then we had a another surgeon another female surgeon say make the comment that has got sparked lots of controversy and really kicked off this whole issue saying that uh, uh, if you are to be subjected to a sexual advance during your surgical training the best thing you can do for your career is to just comply and obviously that yeah and that kicked off this whole sort of really looking into this so I thought we would take the opportunity of having Mr Fixit in the studio to just hear what he has to say I mean it's a very complex issue but your thoughts, Mr. Fixit? <laughs> well, look, it's it's a very very complex situation. I'm I'm very pleased to see that it's it's finally come to a head. You know, I've recently emerged from my um, five years of uh, advanced training, and I, I certainly observed bullying, but wasn't so much the the um, the subject of it. Um, but it's it's endemic. Hmm. It's endemic in the profession, and um, it's great to see that we're finally doing something about it. Um, I've read the expert advisory group's um, report on it, its statement, and it's it's damning of the profession, um, and it's it's very sad to see. But I think this is the start of a new chapter in surgery. I hope, and I I think that we can move forwards from here uh, with the um, statement that they've made and the 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 things which they're putting in place 
best to try and improve the situation. Yeah, look, some of the state, some of the findings were that there's. Well, they're saying that up to 50% of, of fellows and trainees had been the um, victim to bullying or had been affected by bullying. 50%. And everyone, yeah. essentially everyone had, had seen it or been exposed to it, but about you know, half people that they felt it had f- affected their lives, which I, is you know, crazy. I, I'd probably dispute that. I think probably everyone. You, know, you think maybe, it's higher? Yeah, I think probably everyone who's been through surgical training has been the subject of bullying to a certain degree. And it's, it's whether or not you're a resilient person and whether or not it's, it's systematic bullying. Um, I think the, the difficulty in this is finding the, 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 the difference between being held accountable and systemic or systematic bullying of a, of a trainee mm. um, or another surgeon or a junior doctor in the, in the, um, in the department. It's, it, it hinges on, on competence to, to some degree. I think that there's, there's difficulties where you have an incompetent surgeon training, a very competent trainee or, or the reverse, and, and people can, um, can be bullied for, for not being good enough or, or for being too good. But surely you can hold people to account and help them to become better at what they do without bullying them. Surely the two are not synonymous. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. They're, they're definitely not synonymous. Um, but there's a very fine line in some situations, I think. And, mm. and, and being held accountable could be misconstrued as bullying, but equally people could use holding someone to account as a way to bully them. Do you think there's something particular about surgery or do you think if we did this investigation within any specialty in medicine we'd find the same stuff? I, I think you'd find it in almost every discipline, but I think surgery is it's more widespread. I, I see it you know, all the time, but equally my partner, who is a junior doctor, was recently bullied by a physician trainee, and it's, I don't think it's isolated to surgery by any means. And it, look, potentially this is not isolated to medicine, you know. Yeah, Let's just have a broader look at this. But I think... I think there there has to be, you know, to say that it's endemic within surgery and potentially throughout medicine. Like, there's got what? What is it? Why? What? What is it about? It's a culture. I think. Yeah. People, I think people have have experienced it themselves, and it's passed down through generations. And what we need is an entire generation to change that, so that it's not seen as a, an important part of of training a surgeon, yeah, you know, or training a junior doctor. Yeah. When you say it's part of the culture. I mean, I'm intrigued, obviously not having gone through med training and not really having a sense of what that's like. Is it about the hierarchy or is it about a sense of, you know, I was put in my place when I went through training, so this is what happens and sort of having to do your time in that phase? I, th- I think it's, it's, uh, it's the second of those. It was, it's, you know, I went through this, therefore I'll do it. Or it's even, you know, there's, there's thoughts that perhaps people have been selected based on the fact that they fit a mould where they'll be you know, an equal bully later on. You know, mm. it's not like they're set out to achieve that, but but it's the same type A personalities that are chosen for these who are driven to succeed and, and want everything to be perfect and will not necessarily blame themselves when something goes wrong and therefore will use, you know, any, someone else's error as a, as, a, as a means to bully them. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? So it's not just about the culture, but maybe it's about the particular personality type that can make someone a spectacular surgeon. If you choose to narrow a personality type, perhaps you inadvertently create a culture that misses out on some other... But within any generalisation, there are uh, huge exceptions as well. And, and, you know, I work with a guy at the moment who's 
the exact opposite of a bully. You know, he'll include everyone. He will be, um, you know, thoughtful towards patients and other staff. And I don't think that it's something which happens for everyone, but mm. there are individuals and it's so widespread that it's certainly seen as a culture. Where to now? Does the report say anything about what needs to happen or is it just a statement of the current state of play? No, it's, it's got a whole list of um, interventions which they want to put in place and I think that will uh, bring about change. But it needs so, much, so many things to change in order to, to, I guess, turn over a new leaf that it's going to take some time. Do you think that this has damaged the way that the general population view surgeons or view the medical professionals in general? Do you think there's going to be you know, a real fallout from here or not? Oh, I don't think so. I think that people expect... Um, excellence from the medical profession and, and surgery is included within that. But I think that people will be accepting that there are things which have been a part of uh, you know, the past and, and that so long as we're looking forward and we're trying to change things for the better, that, that, that people will be understanding of that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, Thanks for your thoughts. It must be hard being one individual within the whole, you know, um, set trying to comment on it. It's very, very hard, isn't it? Oh, look... I don't know. I think that I, I've always observed it. And, mm. you know, for me, moving forward from here, the, where I want to work will be based upon um, where there is a, a good culture. And and I think what we haven't touched on yet is the fact that this is something which is widespread across departments. If you've got an individual who's who's a bully, that's that's one thing. You can manage that. You've got people within the, the hospital system and within departments which can manage an individual. But it's the problem I see being the, the biggest is when you've got an entire department of, of surgeons that is systematically bullying trainees or junior doctors or even junior consultant surgeons within that. And in some situations, hospital administration need to, are going to need to be involved in order to to clear the decks with mm. with new staff. I think. Mm. So it could take you know some massive changes, and hopefully we are heading towards a place where, you know, we can really acknowledge that this is this is taking place and really take some positive steps forward to stamp it out because there's i mean there's just no place for that type of thing within medicine absolutely not or anywhere for that matter three triple r we have got lots of stuff to still bring you today um we're going to talk about chronic pain and non-surgical approaches to that a bit later on in the show but first I think we're going to talk a bit about sport and mental health um, and Dr Malice is going to bring us this segment. Dr Malice over to you. Yes I think actually it might segue quite inadvertently but very well with chronic pain because it's pain as we know is also a physical as well as a mental contribution to the experience of pain and so mental health in sport both has a physical quality as well as uh, mental and you would have had to have been living under a rock I think for the last 10 days or totally been consumed by Canberra politics not to notice that the front page of many papers actually had a footballer on the cover his name, it happens to be B-U-D-D-Y, which is sort of translates as Buddy. Now, some people don't know Buddy, and uh, 
Others just say, like, where have you been? But out of respect for our panel here, Buddy has been a Hawthorne star who then, under an extraordinary uh, first in sports foot, football sport, a $10 million contract went up to the Sydney Swans and is a celebrated, one might say a genius. Uh, and, you know, this is not a partisan comment. He's just one of those extraordinary players who does things so easily he doesn't even strain himself. However... Look at the other side of his life, and there's been lots and lots of very interesting controversies, let's say, surrounding his behaviour. Can I just clarify Mm. one thing? When I was reading up on this for today's show, I got really confused, and I thought they were talking about two different people, Lance Franklin and Buddy Franklin, but it's one and the same person, isn't it? This is, yeah, Lance is everyone's buddy. Right, That's okay. why it's buddy. Right. <laughs> and he, he really is a charmer, an extraordinary human being by any standard. And now he's hit the headlines uh, at, of his own volition, in a way, declaring that he'd like his privacy respected, but to stop a lot of speculation, his form this year has been really not up to his standard, or sort of the champion that he is, and it's been disclosed that, first of all, that he's had what's called mental health-related issues. This is about 10 days ago. And then it was followed up with an announcement that he also has a mild form of epilepsy. Now, I have to have a disclaimer here that I have never met the man uh, to talk to him, so I'm going to no go... No matter how much you would have liked to, I'm and, sure, and still, one, one hopes, one lives <laughs> on hope. One day... Buddy, if you're listening. Buddy and I will have a coffee or, or a Coke or some... Well, whatever we drink. Anyway. <laughs> so... One lives on hope. But just to clarify the boundary around this morning, this is purely speculative and sparked off by his a serious condition. And this goes outside of football. This is about life. And really the uh, articles that have been appearing show the enormous pain that is caused to any one of us with a mental health condition. And then let's multiply that by many factors if you're in the public limelight. You've got a fiancé, you're about to be married, you're facing a final test as a final series football of your competence and your excellence, and you then also have a fit seen in public and you're taken into hospital. Now... The question arises that, yes, he has got declared depression. And in the background, we all know he's had knee injuries and uh, hip injuries and what other else. But they are sort of physical displays of dysfunction. And no one gives too much of a hoot. You never ask for privacy about your knee condition. (laughs) So what is it about your mental health condition and this mild form of epilepsy, that the statement from the Swans is, please respect his privacy, and from his fiancée as well. Now, on on the plus side, he has actually gone public, which is an extraordinarily brave and courageous thing to do. But on the other hand, it then opens up more questions, what is his condition? Now, I'd like to leave the depression to one side because that's been dealt with with so many other sports people. Can I just ask, Hmm. so has he actually come out and said, I suffer from depression, or is that people's assumption about what's going on? No, there's a a depression that is acknowledged. But that should be a fairly standard, um, tragic as it is, uh, but this, the other, the, that's usually not qualified by a mental health condition. It's just said, you know, he has depression. So the association here that raised my 
profound interest and professionally speaking I deal with this in children and it's a terribly complex very sensitive issue which is the psychogenic non-epileptic seizures and this is the grey area that is between neurologists on the one hand who do final diagnosis of epilepsy with EEG psychiatrists on the other hand who do non-epileptic seizures but find it very hard to diagnose on its presentation on the history on the context of the child's life and the ultimate diagnosis which is by a combination of EEG and video at the same time that a fit is occurring that is the only way you can diagnose a psychogenic non-epileptic seizure and so we don't know that he's having non-epileptic seizures do we it might he might have epilepsy. It may have been diagnosed with EEGs. It may have. But, but you're now, just using this as an example, well, I guess, but the to example talk is, through. Yes, the example is that it happened, according to the newspaper report, surrounding his fiancée's departure for an overseas trip. Now, that would be so innocent. In a coffee lounge, you come back from the airport and you fall down and have a seizure. It's called epilepsy, until proven otherwise. In the conditions that I've seen in my clinical practice, separation for certain individuals is a profound stress. Mm. Now, the question arises, when someone's been at this elite level of mental functioning and physical functioning, he's had injuries with, a, I think, a broken rib or some serious physical injury that has prevented him playing at his top level. So his esteem is already drifting down. Then he has the challenge of facing his former football club, as indeed he did last year in the grand final, Hawthorne Swans, coming up again but not being fit. Further stresses. For the first time after what was regarded as a very colourful life with the ladies, he is now engaged. So this is a totally different lifestyle of commitment, long-term love affair, presumably deeply, deeply involved in his heart and soul, and she goes overseas. Now, when you're in a vulnerable state and you've got great pride, as he should, healthy pride, and you're already on one leg, and then you're intimate partner leaves you and you're facing going over the west coast or interstate football teams and you're not up to your normal standard the question of shame and humiliation enters the arena doubt yes Malice, I'm just quietly freaking out over here about oh. how much we're speculating about what's happening with him. And so I just feel this the need... This is not speculation. This is actually facts. I'm just putting but joining we, the dots. Exactly. But we don't know that it's not an epileptic seizure, I guess, is what I feel now, the need now, to Now, this is again. why I'm saying that exact, we don't. Yeah. Now, the differential diagnosis, that is, the things one keeps in mind, is hopefully he's all treated. But if in a year's time his epilepsy is not controlled, then we have to go back to the original diagnosis and was it a misdiagnosis? Mm. Now, the same thing happens in very popular in all our... The, the, the depression now is bipolar is the buzzword for everything. The editorial of this week's, psych, this month's psychiatric journal, the Australian New Zealand Journal of Psychiatry, is an amazing title, How Do You Depolarise Bipolar? What does that mean? <laughs> It means if you've misdiagnosed bipolar, which is now a major health condition of misdiagnosing, you then have to depolarise the patient and the clinician. I mean, it's a play on words. But here what I'm 
advocating is to please take care not to jump into simplistic diagnoses because later on you have to with and he's got depression as well Mm. so the two sometimes can be playing into each other if you don't think of the psychological dimension Mm. you may diagnose a bipolar and later on otherwise it's not in an editorial it's a serious health issue you have to depolarize them what an extraordinary Um. concept I just one of the things that comes up for me when we're talking about sports people and um, mental health issues is is oh, do we take some responsibility as the public in in terms of contributing to the manifestation of mental health issues in our sports people is there undue pressure on these people I mean yes you say he's an exceptional sportsman but that that may mean he he has he's blessed with the physical attributes that allow him to play football at an elite level but that doesn't mean that he has um you know there's so much more to being a very successful sports people if we look at the people that do extremely well on individual sports pursuits and um i'm interested in your comments on this mr fix it as i know that not only are you a surgeon you're also a previous olympian um that you know that it takes this level of resilience and bouncing back from setbacks and that that's the that's the part of um i think that that kind of strength that strength from bouncing and doing this all in the public eye is incredibly difficult and so it's it's almost like we burden these people with these excellent physical attributes that enable them to be excellent sportsmanships. We put all this pressure on them, and perhaps they don't have that that other element that is required in order to kind of bounce back from setbacks. Um, and I feel and like so that we contribute yeah. to that as a society. As a society, I, I totally agree, not only with sports people, but, say, politicians. What happens to a minister or prime minister who's at the top of his game and from literally one evening decision, he's out of a job? How does one prepare for that? And in the culture of politics, that is well known. You better be developing a tough skin that you could be knifed any minute. But hang on, where is the self agency in all of this. I mean, these people have chosen to go into these careers themselves. Perhaps it's difficult to imagine exactly what it might be like and what the consequences are, but surely as a politician or as an elite sports person, you have some sense of what you're getting yourself into and you're choosing that as a career. No one's forcing you to do it. And you choose it when you're a footballer, when you're about 15, 16 or 17, and you get recruited in high school and that's the point you've got an adolescent brain who's going for glory and if you're talented you don't even know you've got these attributes of of genius and you just go with it until you break bones and you no longer can function and from 16 17 18 you're choosing your career for the next 10 years how vulnerable are you mr fixer do you want to comment a little bit on what you think you know are we getting it wrong a sports sportsmen or sports people getting the support that they need or the kind of training they need in order to sort of develop this resilience required? I I think they are. I mean, we're well prepared as athletes when we're going through the system by 
um, sports psychologists, by um, the sports physicians. They, there's a fair bit of involvement of other um, experts, and and it's well acknowledged now that sport is far more than the set of physical attributes that you're gifted with. And I think you nailed it really by saying it's resilience. Uh, I've always been a believer that. You know, the people who succeed at the highest level in sport are not necessarily the most gifted, but they're the most resilient, and they're the ones who want it more than the next person. Um, so I think that attribute is important, and we place expectations on athletes um, because of the set of physical or, or technical attributes that they have, but but sometimes they fall over, and, and it, it's, it, it's got to be expected. Having said that, I think that we're doing a reasonable job on the whole of preparing our athletes for life after after sport and preparing them for the difficulties that they face on a day-to-day basis um, outside of their technical competition. I can't help but thinking back to a show that was oh, maybe a couple of months ago. I think it was one of Dr. Doolittle's shows, and there was a guest on um, Hugh who is... Um, one of I think the CEO of the Resilience Project and one of the things that he does is work with sports people around mm. mindfulness which seems a little bit counterintuitive and I think he even said that when he first went in to work with I think it's rugby players he thought you know gosh how am I going to sell mindfulness to this group of men and mm. talk to them about the importance of it but actually it's been really successful and they've jumped on board but that's it's a lovely example isn't it of the the other support that you need around you to be resilient and to help through, to help yourself through not only elite sports life but any life really yeah. hmm. fascinating stuff you are listening to a podcast from community radio 3 triple r fm in melbourne australia now, we are going to be talking now about mindfulness for chronic pain. And we're very fortunate to have a, a surgeon in the studio with us today, Mr. Fixit. Now, this isn't a normal thing, I don't think, for surgeons. Well, not the surgeons I used to know, but you're an exception, Mr. Fixit, um, to think about, sort of a mindfulness approach to chronic pain. Can you tell me how you started thinking about this? Yeah, look, in this uh, current job that I'm doing here in, here in Melbourne, I've, I'm working with child and adolescent um, patients with, with mainly hip problems, and often they come to us with quite long-standing pain, and I think to a certain degree there's a, a, um, a component of um, amplification of what is a normal set of symptoms with, with hip problems, um, and, and often the pain is, is so long-standing that it's, it's very difficult to manage. And they come thinking that they need a surgical solution to uh, to their problem, but but I think often what they need is is something which is completely non-surgical. Um, what they need is is help with with managing their their pain um, in a way that is I guess about living with a, a small degree of pain and and learning how to do that well. It's. I guess a, a, a common problem in adults as well, but it's really been brought to the fore in my mind by this current job. So can I ask, Mr Fixit, when they come and they're wanting surgery for the pain, is it that, you know, they're just wanting a fix, I guess, they want the pain to end and they assume that surgery is the way to go, but is it the case that you could still have surgery and still be in pain? Absolutely. I think people often have misconceptions about what can and can't be fixed 
if you like. Um, they come with an, a set of opinions from either a, a, a general practitioner or a physio or someone else that they've seen, a, an osteopath or chiropractor, who has told them that they might need surgery to fix it. And they come to us and we investigate them and we try to identify whether or not there's really a structural problem which is causing the pain. And often there is. I think to a certain degree in these patients with chronic pain, there is a small degree of a structural problem. But their symptoms and what they're dealing with on a day-to-day basis is out of proportion um, to the structural problem that exists there. So it's, I guess it can, it's, it's analogous to back pain in some patients. Um, you get a, a certain degree of degenerative change in your back as you get older and people with some people end up with really debilitating back pain um, as a result, which can totally change their life. And yet other people with far worse structural problems seem to be asymptomatic. And what I would like to be able to do is convert these people who have really symptomatic but mild structural problems to asymptomatic. Mm. Okay? And, and in my mind, there has to be a psychological way or a, a mindfulness way of doing that. And, and I think it's partly about acknowledging the fact that there's that there's not something major going on that's going to do long-term damage um, and being able to accept that in their life mm. so look i think um and you make an excellent point so there, there may be a, a small amount of of you know some pathology there so something wrong physically but and we're not to say that people are there for you know making up this pain no, they're no. actually truly experiencing it but they're experiencing it more because their 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 mind has adjusted the way they perceive the pain so exactly. it's kind of an amping up of that section of their brain that focuses in focuses in on pain they develop a hypervigilance for pain there's this you know real looking for the pain and being overwhelmed by it and that there's the suggestion that you're making that we can intervene in in terms of providing psychological techniques to help them really turn down those pain centres in their brain. Yeah, I think it can end up being the complete focus of a patient's life. You know, they spend every waking moment thinking about this pain that they're experiencing and to some degree all of us have pain that we experience and, and how much time we spend thinking about that pain is often proportional to how busy we are. I'm sure Dr. Autonomy, if she has pain now, she doesn't have time to think about <laughs> her pain because of the little addition to the family that has come along. But I think that being able to almost distract the brain from thinking about the pain that it's experiencing is is the goal of, you know, how to, it's, it's, it's the way to treat these people. It's quite... Uh I think to hear that for the first time and to hear about the role of the mind in your experience of pain, which intuitively feels like a very physical thing, not a mental thing, I think it's quite shocking in a way to think that there's this psychological component um, and perhaps a surprise for some people. But in psychology and in the literature around chronic pain and psychology, it's actually a very accepted fact that the mind plays a huge role in your experience of pain and that psychological and social factors interact with chronic pain. And in fact, there's quite a bit of evidence now that shows that psychological distress um, contributes to the progression of pain and to the chronicity of it. So that's a sort of a well-established fact. Uh, the question then is 
how does the mind interact with it and yeah what can we do about that to um from a mental perspective from a psychological perspective to change people's physical experience of their pain yeah, exactly. And so, look, I think um, it'd be interesting for us to sort of turn our attention. Where where do we intervene? Where do we make this call? And and how do we do it? Because in the literature we see that, you know, it's up to one in five people experience some degree of chronic pain along their lifespan. Now, are they actually identified as having chronic pain? Is there something done for them? We know that only about 2% of people with chronic pain actually end up in our multidisciplinary pain clinics and potentially for the first time then hear about these psychological approaches that they can undertake to manage their pain. So where do we intervene? Melis, do you want to comment? Well, I, I think relevant here is this game-changing view of pain with the idea of neuroplasticity. And in fact, uh, Norman Doidge, a very well-respected name who about 10 years ago wrote a book, uh, The Brain That uh, Changes Itself, has followed up last year with another book, The Brain That Heals Itself. One of the case stories is actually a professor of, I think, psychiatry had intractable pain and how he devised just this intervention of turning the techniques, uh, the knowledge of neuroplasticity on himself, as you suggested, Mr. Fixit, with distractive mechanisms, but the underlying mechanism there isn't actually distraction per se. It's actually to build up new pathways from those centres that have been almost cemented in as the centre of the identity of the person, and their life is centred around how to live with intractable pain to very, I mean, this is no easy task, to rewire first by distraction, but it's actually a strategic distraction. It's not like, oh, don't think about it. It's actually think what you're thinking about. And so by mapping out the actual pain centres, and in fact, it's no longer, we don't talk about centres, but networks, and therefore rewiring these networks, it's an extraordinary chapter I'd recommend as the for self-help even. We had a fascinating lecture when I was going through my psychology training about chronic pain and the pain clinics that exist in several Melbourne hospitals um, for people who are experiencing chronic pain. And it stayed with me, which not all of my lectures did. Um, but this was one that really stood out because it was such what a, a mind shift. <laughs> doctor autonomy. Oh. Um, and what, what they spoke about in this lecture was... Um, the way that the rest of your life impacts on how you view the pain. And so to give you just a sort of small example, someone who is experiencing chronic pain might then start to avoid doing the things that they normally do because they're in pain. And then their body might become a little bit weaker and a bit, a little bit less <laughs> flexible and a bit stiffer and their life becomes more restricted and they stop doing the things they used to do. And then maybe they f start to feel a bit flat because they're not doing those things and they're not having the social connections that they used to have. And they start to feel discouraged. And so then they're uh, spending more time alone or more time at home and less time distracted and doing things they enjoy and the pain becomes even more of a focus and therefore um, it takes up more of their attention and uh, physically feels stronger and so 
the the treatment the psychological sort of approach that was talked about in this lecture was this sort of whole of lifestyle approach where instead of thinking about how can we change your experience of this pain you know medically or you know physically um, let's think about the rest of your life let's try to get you back into life and and exercising and moving your body as normally as possible and improving your strength and flexibility and resuming a rich full life that's full of meaning and the things that really matter to you and speak to your values and that will in turn reduce your emotional distress and therefore impact on the way that you view pain, which is pretty phenomenal stuff and very complex to um, start and succeed in, but a total shift from just a, a medical, physical view of pain. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, medicine in the past, many, many years ago, it probably recommended a lot of rest for physical, you know, some, someone comes in with back pain and the, the doctor would say bed rest. And like, I mean, that's an absolute no-no nowadays. No one would ever suggest that. So we are tweaking the way that we view um you know pain but i don't think we've come far enough and i think that that's what you're you're sort of noticing mr fix it that we haven't come far enough and we need to we need to almost start talking about the psychological aspects of pain and acceptance of a, of pain at you know at the very beginning yeah look i think it's it's very difficult first of all we've got to identify who's going to benefit from it um, often patients come with having had multiple surgeries or having seen four or five other surgeons and all of whom have had different opinions and i think as much as anything it's about letting the patient know that there's nothing major wrong they're not going to end up in a wheelchair they're not going to be debilitated they're not going to do more damage by continuing to function and then once you've done that then you need to start setting about i guess altering the day-to-day life and as you said distracting from um, the, the focus on on pain and one of the ways we do that now is by referring to a physiotherapist who works not in the typical way that a physiotherapist would work by means of manipulation or massage or tens or other modalities but instead just taking the patient through normal functional things they they do on a day-to-day basis things like getting in and out of the car and doing that without having pain or with having pain which is is manageable and and just it's essentially about teaching the patient how to to live again how to to function on a day-to-day basis with that small amount of pain and it seems obvious doesn't it how mindfulness can then come into it because mindfulness is all about being in the present moment in a non-judgmental way and accepting what is happening as this present experience and trying not to judge it and so i guess being in the moment focusing on what's happening and accepting where you are and what's going on without catastrophizing it and trying to sort of dissociate yourself from those thoughts of catastrophizing and hypervigilance and to just step back and be in the moment makes perfect sense yeah it's it's important, I think, also to say to people that, that this isn't something to be, you know, to be ashamed of. It's not something which is wrong with you in your, in, in your brain or in your mind. Mm. It's, it's pretty normal for a lot of people to have these feelings and to have these focuses. And I think it's, it's underdiagnosed in a, in a huge way. And increasing awareness of this in doctors, in surgeons, in people who come across these patients will only lead to better outcomes by, 
by means of having uh, somewhere to refer or a, a set of tools with which to, to deal with this problem. Mm. And just on that, a set of tools, the one that we always carry around with us wherever we are is to pay attention to our breathing. And anyone in pain is going to be in shallow, rapid breathing just to slow down if you can and just take a few deep, considered, mindful breaths. Mm. It overrides a lot. I tell you, we've been talking about cultural change in surgery. We've just had a surgeon on talking about non-surgical techniques to chronic pain and mindfulness. It's happening as we speak. (laughs) Just like the new Prime Minister, we've got a new way of thinking about pain and surgeons and all sorts of things. Mm. Miss Medic, I think we're about done, aren't we? I think it's time to wrap things up. Absolutely. Thanks for co-hosting. Thanks for (laughs) co-hosting. It was a pleasure. It was a pleasure. (laughs) Um, Kent, brilliant work on the panel. Dr Malice, Mr Fixit, thank you so much for joining us stay tuned the scientists are in the studio ready to bring you another hour of fascinating stuff and we'll be back next week whenever i come home after an art day's work i love to listen to the sounds of triple r 102.7 this has been a podcast from three triple r 102.7 fm in melbourne truly independent community radio want to hear more check out our website at rrr.org.au